should make sure. To... Uh, happy Monday, everybody. How's it going? Going great out here. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Matt, how, how are you? I, I'm doing well. I had a good weekend. How, how are you doing, Keith? Good to meet you. Dragging a little bit because I'm uh, dealing with a, a breakthrough uh, COVID, but I'm I'm on the on the mend. So I have my uh, tall cup of coffee that I can't smell. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that's horrifying. Like, yeah. Well, does it does it? Hopefully, it doesn't inhibit caffeine, though, right? Because that, that would be like, <laughs> the worst disease ever. <laughs> like, no, you would die, Joe. I might as well, actually. Yeah, I, I would just be like, yeah, just just uh, send it. So anyway, on that sure note, um, welcome Keith to the show. Um, uh, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Sure. So, uh, so I'm very much uh, uh, a data science guy and still kind of operating there. So mostly on the predictive modeling side. So um, a little bit of history actually probably would be interesting because I think it'll be relevant today. I actually started out as an SPSS trainer. Hmm. In the I late haven't heard that for a while. Quite, so quite a while ago. Yeah. So um, and initially statistics, I thought I would do graduate work in statistics. It's actually why I relocated to Raleigh-Durham, I had my eye on uh, Chapel Hill because back then, I mean, this is a ways ago, you know, but back then there were, of course, no data science graduate programs that, you know, they didn't exist. So it was kind of the expectation that if you were going to get serious about this, that you would do graduate work in stats. And I kind of feel like I dodged a bullet because that's, that's not the way people think about it now. I mean, I think the computer science side of it is considered more important. Not that the stats side is considered unimportant, but I don't think you'd want somebody, I don't think most people would want to hire a PhD in stats typically to run their data science, you know, team if it's really, um, you know, too heavy on the stats side. But then SPSS bought a much smaller company that made what was then called SPSS Modeler um, and is now an IBM product. And that was a predictive analytics workbench. So very kind of all tricks looking, you know, kind of a thing, or maybe like NIME, if folks know NIME. So I started using that like in 99 before that, before that kind of flow chart looking thing was a, was a, was a thing. So all those years I've been building models, whether it's um, uh, predictive models on the stat side or predictive models on the machine learning side, I've always been a model builder. That's cool. And back in the day, it was just called predictive modeling too. I used to do a lot of that same stuff, and it was it wasn't called data science or anything. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's interesting. It's funny how terms change. Um, and um, and yeah, it, it's well, well, we'll get to more of that in a bit. But we're, we decided it on an interesting format too. Uh, we, we're going to kind of turn the tables a bit, and um, you're actually going to, um, I think, more interview us uh, about some stuff. So. Yeah, I think that'll be a lot of fun because um, the book has been out for uh, a few weeks now. Seems like almost daily. There's a picture of the book on LinkedIn. So congrats, guys, for that. Yeah, Seems that's very right. well. <laughs> but I figure that you've um, told the book origin story. You know, you've had a chance to do that a couple of times. Yeah. And your primary audience, it seems to me, or people that are going to be doing data engineering, but it's not your only audience, you know, uh, certainly a secondary audience are data scientists like me that are working with data engineering teams, hopefully so they can be um, better collaborators. That's the, you know, that's the hope. 
So I figured it'd be a lot of fun to really focus on that side of the house, um, collaboration between data science and data engineering. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I think that was one of kind of a secondary audience for us is data scientists who would be working with data engineers and just wanted to understand what the whole discipline is all but about. But that's our, our background too, is actually exactly. in data science, right? So it was like, we kind of wrote the book for ourselves. And like, I think part of it was also understanding, okay, so if we were to um, write a book for our, our younger uh, data scientist selves, like what would that look like? Um, I guess it would also be like maybe steer, steer clear of uh, <laughs> uh, ye pitfalls ahead. Um, but yeah, so. You know, uh, interesting kind of side note, but I think quite relevant to what we're talking about is I noticed um, uh, the show that you were on, Joe, with Bill Inman. And then mm -hmm. I caught the show or um, most of the, the show that you guys did with Kent last week. Anyway, they're nice. very, they're very much part of the crowd that does uh, Bill not as much uh, as years ago. But there's a conference that um, happens four times a year called uh, the Data Warehouse Institute that mm -hmm. I've spoken at a number of times. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's very much, I mean, given the name, it's very much like a data warehouse event, right? But there's a lot of folks that are on that side of the house that are curious about analytics. So I've been going to that for, gosh, I don't know, six or seven years now. And when I sit in on sessions, the sessions that I sit in on are very much the kind of stuff that you guys are talking about in the book. But when I'm given my talks, it's usually relatively introductory machine learning stuff because people on the data engineering side are curious about what's, you know, happened on the data science side. In some cases, just, you know, fairly basic, like a stats 101 or, um, you know, machine learning fundamentals like decision trees or something like that. So, so I, I felt as I read the book, it felt like this ongoing conversation that I've had almost every lunch mm. I've had with other instructors at, uh, you know, TDWI, where I'm usually outnumbered, you know, where they're basically all coming at it from the data engineering side. And there's only about two or three of us that um, are brought in to kind of spice things up with some data science content. It's good to actually motivate the data engineering. I, I find increasingly that there's this continuum between data warehousing and um, what you might consider like the kind of big data machine learning space more. I think back in the days of Hadoop, there was more of a clear division, right? You maybe have your Oracle or SQL Server on-prem system that's just for data warehousing, just for business analytics, and then the other stuff is happening in this big data system. But now it's often the same stack that's used for both. Hey, Matt, can you turn your mic up just a tad? Yeah. Yeah, so a common topic that we talk about when I'm hanging out with that crowd, um, and I'm sure will come up today, is, you know, on the data engineering side, how is serving kind of the business intelligence, business analytics crowd different from serving the data science machine learning crowd like me? Because that's a, that's a constant conversation mm. when I'm hanging out with those folks, because it's almost like an 80-20 rule thing and people like me are never part of the 80%. <laughs> you know, we're the we're the exception, you know. So how much time and energy can you reasonably allocate to the most demanding 2% of your users? Which is frankly going to be people like me, right? I mean, I think that'll be one of the interesting topics uh, uh today. So uh Yeah, for sure. You guys ready? Should we jump in? Let's let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh 
First question I wanted to ask uh, you guys is that um, I very much agree with when you're talking about um, the definition of data engineering and data science, that they're separate disciplines and that data engineering isn't under some big umbrella, you know, some data science umbrella. And I think the skill sets are different. I think the career path is different. So I'm totally on board with the separation thing. So here's my question. If it's true that for the most part, that data engineering is upstream from data science, in other words, you guys are, as the data engineers, are kind of helping to create this environment that hopefully makes it easier for people like me to do what I do. There's this interesting issue, and that is model modeling and management. I'm sorry, not the, the modeling, but the managing and monitoring of models that have already been built. Mm. And I suppose that's MLOps, but you know, MLOps has as many different definitions as data science and data engineering does. But a quick anecdote about that software I was talking about earlier is that there was a product called Collaboration and Deployment Services. So all the SPSS modeler geeks that may be listening, we're small in number, but they maybe have heard of this thing. Very, very few people would have ever heard of this. But it was literally a handoff from SPSS modeler that built the models to this model management software that was really quite separate, that really had much more of a data warehouse type skill set to it. So there was this explicit handoff, and I've always kind of thought of it that way. So I was curious about what you guys think. After the model is built, so now we're downstream of the data scientist, you've got these models, they're going to accumulate, there's going to be a bunch of them. Somebody's going to monitor and manage them. One, is that what you guys would call ML ops? You mentioned ML ops briefly in the book. And two, who should be in charge of that? It's actually funny. I'm giving a talk on this um, right after the, the podcast at the AI Infrastructure Alliance um, wow. on uh, the role of data engineering in um, uh, data-centric AI. So data-centric AI is sort of what Andrew Ng had referred to as um, sort of the reaction to an algorithm-first uh, approach to machine learning, which has traditionally been um, the approach over the years, right? Make algorithms and just, you know, because we have a lot of data, we can do amazing things. I think the recognition is data quality does matter. Um, reliability and consistency and how data is delivered is also important. And so that's one of the things that, you know, talk about and how it relates to your question, I think, and I love Matt's opinion on this too. Um, you know, data engineering is really responsible for, for taking raw data ingredients and making them useful for downstream consumption. At the end of the day, that that's its own life cycle. Uh, I, I personally see data and or sorry, machine learning engineering and uh, ML ops as being a separate life cycle. And for that reason, um, data engineers, I think, should have an appreciation for and know um, the mechanics of how uh, ML engineers and ML ops uh, practitioners work, but that's probably a tangential to the everyday role of a data engineer. But of course, there's always a uh, and it depends answer. Um, I, I think I see this changing too uh, with uh, the the lines between data engineering and, and ML engineering might uh, become more blurred uh, over time. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I, th I think there's still this tricky problem of boundaries where the boundaries between these different disciplines, you know, data science, machine learning engineer, and data engineer are kind of fuzzy and quite different at different companies. And so in many cases, what we're seeing is that ML engineers kind of do all their own data engineering, right? And so they, they treat the data engineers as a completely separate discipline, which probably is not ideal because it leads to a lot of repeated work. 
And then we also see this phenomenon. In theory, the data scientists should all be always be doing new stuff, right? That's their job. They're hired to like find new models. In practice, what often happens is that a data scientist finally gets a model that works really well, right? They work on a bunch of projects and they find one that makes the company like $50 million a year. Have statistics to back that up. And then their job becomes, they basically just become an ML engineer who manages that model and like That's monitors true. it and tunes mm -hmm. it. Where in principle, you would like a separate team to, to do that so that the, the data scientist could be exploring all the time. But I've seen that numerous times and it's not like the ideal career end that most data scientists want, but it, it pays the bills. And so it's often what happens in practice. But how does a data scientist learn the engineering skills to do that? I mean, that, that's kind of the crux and one of the reasons yeah. I think we wrote this book because how often have we had to stand up uh, pipelines and set up infra to to do the job that we w were hired to do, but somehow we spend 90% of our time doing everything except the job we are hired to do. So, you know, there's, um, there's another complication too. Um, what you were saying, Matt, really resonates with me. But, you know, something that maybe people don't think about, I've been an external resource most of my career. And we all know the turnover is really quite high. I mean, at the moment, we're going through this crazy great resignation or whatever people want to call it. But let's say for the sake of argument, I'm doing two, I'm part of two or three, I'm internal and I'm doing two or three projects a year, maybe. Maybe they overlap somewhat in time. Well, what if I stay with the company for two and a half years and I'm, and I'm gone? Somebody's got to inherit, especially if it's $50 million, no one's going to let that just die off, you know? So, um, if you've got 20, 30 models in production, I don't think a data scientist can reasonably be a project lead on a six month project while they're also dealing with 20 models, 10 of which they inherited and 10 of which they had some role in themselves. Uh, gosh, if you wanna push the data scientist out the door, that's a, that's a good way to do it. So are we possibly talking about a, you know, a third team is somebody, <laughs> It's something to get me writing the fundamentals of uh, uh, ML ops, meaning really the model management and monitoring. You know, I, I think, think that, that needs to happen, happen, actually. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, Makiko has been writing a lot about ML ops lately, right? We should probably chat with her about this sometime. Well, Demetrios' community is like, yeah. that, you know, yeah. 10, you know, I, I'm going to check actually. It's a big community. Yeah. Um, just on ML ops. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, the I mean, ML ops community is giant. What do they have now? I'm, I'm just looking at the general channel and it's like, yeah, 12,000 people, right? So, yeah, as I said that, I was just thinking of Makiko, actually, because I, yeah. I believe that's how I believe that's how she defines it is uh, model monitoring and management. But for me, that's been a big part of why I've always worried about this, is that if I'm an external resource, I can come in for six months and help build a model. Yeah. But I always warn clients. I say, don't forget about this model monitoring and management. And I bring it up like from the first visit. And I say, you know, by the time I'm done, I hope there's a lot of overlap, like a few weeks between the end of my role before I leave and getting somebody up to speed on this, because you can't, you can't have an external resource to model monitoring and management, right? And it does sound a lot like the problems that DevOps was intended to solve. That is um, developers working solo, fully owning their code, not collaborating, not collaborating with other developers, not collaborating with ops. So that if anything happened to them, if they got COVID or something and the code crashed, no one knew how to fix it, right? And it sounds very similar to that where it's like, no, we need to socialize the management of these models and the operational responsibilities so that anyone could leave the team and other people can pick up the slack over time. Cool. So not only uh, 
uh, are we off to a good start? That's that could probably be a whole show, which I would love. To. <laughs> I think so. I would, we'll, I would, we'll, we'll get it scheduled. That sounds fun. <laughs> oh, oh, and I was going to just mention one more thing related to that is that when you get into it's interesting because when you guys talk about reverse ETL and pushing the scores back, yep. Um, that is one small piece of what we were just talking about. Yep. And you guys mentioned that more than likely that lands on the data engineer's desk. Reverse ETL oh, typically yeah. does, yeah, yeah. 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 Just taking results from analytical systems too and pushing it back to some sort of a, a destination or something equivalent to it. Yeah. So it's not quite ML, but in, in talking with people who, who have been doing a, a reverse ETL, it's sort of interesting in that it, it some, some, one of my friends made a comment, it feels like the stakes are higher in some ways because uh, now you really have to be right because you're pushing results back yep. to the business, um, like a lead score or something like that, back to say a CRM and like you better be sure. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of wasted motion if you're wrong. Well, and it, let's think of another example. I mean, Mike, the classic example I use of reverse CTL is an ads platform, right? So doing some scoring and then pushing bids back to Facebook or Google. Um, there's there's a getting it right aspect, Joe. Like you said, you can blow through a lot of money very quickly if your models are wrong. And then there's a monitoring aspect to like watch what's going on, watch for problems, and then correct them very quickly. And in this case, this fits very much in the domain of data engineering and MLOps, frankly. Like it's very much an MLOps type problem to make sure that you're not wasting tons and tons of money with bad modeling. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I've got the next question queued up here, but uh, one, one final thought on this is kind of my nightmare scenario would be as an external resource, I build the model. We put in a place a way that the scores can be pushed back to the system, but no one's paying attention to yeah the model degrading over time. Mm -hmm. And that absolutely happens, right? Because people, because when the model is fresh, the number one thing in their mind is getting the scores. And then a lot of times um, organizations will drop the ball on watching the model degrade. So if the data scientist that built that model has exited, if they're no longer there, probably nobody's watching that. And next thing you know, you're gonna have scores that are being pushed out, but the model accuracy has dropped and no one knows. That's like nightmare scenario. Yeah. And it, it, it there are other subtleties too. So for example, in online retail, many places, Black Friday is still very important. And when you hit Black Friday, all these sales switch on and also your audience completely changes, right? The people who are coming to your site change completely. And so in a day, your model can basically break and that can have bad consequences <laughs> if you're not paying attention. All right, so next one. Um, I don't know if this will be quick or, or not quick, right? but you guys have a great section that I really liked about trying to get into all the different titles, including the C-suite. You know, how is CIO different from CDO and CAO and so on? Um, I think it seems like you guys were pretty uh, careful to not make it too prescriptive. I imagine one, because you just didn't want to, you know, kind of go there in the, in the book because, and also because I think that people haven't figured this out yet. You know, so you were more descriptive than prescriptive, but I'm just going to, at the risk of putting you on the spot, kind of imagine that you're doing more, not the kind of book you wrote, but more like a HBR article or maybe like McKinsey wants you to write one of these, how you should do it, right? Be prescriptive for a moment. Who should the data engineers report to and who should the data scientists report to? Oh, that is a good question. Joe, do you want to go first on this one? <laughs> Looks like you have some thoughts. I have a few thoughts. I was one. thinking about it, actually, and I was like, well, this, I'm going to have to think a lot about this. Um, it, it really does depend on, um, 
the structure of the company. And, you know, and I, I'm just going to borrow some thoughts from, you know, my friends, uh, you know, John Thompson and Jesse Anderson have written books on data teams, right? And I think inevitably it really does depend on who, um, I guess, who the boss of the data scientists or data engineers also reports to, right? So if it's a, like, um, IT might report to a CFO, that's classically been sort of who that reports to, right? But at that point then, you know, you got to ask, okay, so what kind of projects are you going to be working on? These are going to be more probably, uh, um, kind of more, I, I would argue probably playing defense type things. Um, you know, you're, you're now a, a part of the cost center, so to speak. It's the CFO pays more attention to the cost. If, if it's uh, related to a CDO or CEO or somebody who's uh, more focused on the executional parts of the business, a COO is the other one. Um, you know, I think the nature of the work will be different in that. Um, and so who, who you report to, I think it really depends on the type of company that you're working at. There's not really a one size fits all answer to this. But the type of work you end up doing really does depend on who you report to at the end of the day. So, Matt, what are your thoughts? Um, so, one thought that springs <clears throat> to mind, one of the things we talk about is this notion of a chief algorithms officer. And this is a relatively new notion. I think it started at Stitch Fix. And the idea is that if your company is really built around data science and machine learning, that instead of just putting that under like a CTO role or something, you define a role that's really responsible for that whole area. And so they might have responsibilities that reach into data engineering and other things, but they're responsible for like leading the company's strategy around machine learning and data science and making that a core part of whatever that company does. Um, and I think you could argue that this role maybe even goes back to Google in the early days, right? Like Google was very much a company that was built around the PageRank algorithm. Um, and, and you could argue that like Larry Page and Sergey Brin together served in kind of this chief algorithms officer role. And so I think if your company is really, if that's your core competency, then maybe you should think about having that kind of role in the C-suite to lead all those initiatives. Well, I mean, at Berkshire that, Hathaway, that's how Ajit Jain's been uh, running insurance for a long time. I mean, he's yeah. he, he was basically hired, uh, I think, on a sort of a whim almost um, uh, back in the day. But, you know, Ajit's arguably, you know, the best, um, you know, risk assessor in insurance in the world, period. And... Um, you know, he has full autonomy. I, I would say he might be the prototype of what a chief algorithms officer has always been, or chief risk officer. Um, he's not doing data science per se, but he also happens to be running insurance and like the largest reinsurer in the world and Geico and everybody else. And so, you know, I think he sets a really good archetype for um, how that's done too, where if it's, if it's at the end of the day, I think you got to make a determination, like where is this stuff core to your business, yeah. right? And so obviously risk is very important to an insurance company. So you're going to want to have like, that's, you're not going to have that person report to, uh, you know, um, your CFO, for example, that it's not the same function. And so, uh, but I don't, I don't, you know, again, I don't know if Ajit has data scientists working under him or if he literally is just a one person show like that, that. I don't know the answer to that, but. But he probably well, has actuaries working under him, right? Which you could argue and Keith is a stats guy. I'll be here, curious to hear your thoughts on this, but maybe you could argue that actuaries were sort of the forerunners of data yeah, science gonna, in many respects. That's where I was going to go next with this is I think actuaries have always been sort of the, uh, the, the data team before there was a data team. Um, and that's a data team also where you had to get lots of training, for example, like t 10 years to become a fellow. I mean, you, you're better off getting an MD if you wanted to save some time and make some money. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, so two things, there's definitely some overlap, but the thing about actuaries is they're making population level predictions. Yeah. And I think the most interesting predictive analytics is per case, you know, mm -hmm. where I'm making a prediction about an individual claim. And I've actually done, you know, some, some pretty interesting insurance fraud stuff. So I find 
that generally speaking, there's kind of a disconnect between um, actuaries and, and predictive analytics. They just look at mm -hmm. the world so differently. Now, that doesn't mean that one can't cross-train because there's so much common knowledge between the two, uh, but there are some big I think the way the teams were set up, though, you know, actuarial science teams, I think they'd set kind of a archetype for how, you know, um, like dedicated data science teams uh, were probably later set up in, in some degree. But then again, you know, uh, data science also borrowed a lot from software engineering too, right? And so you have back to the notion of ops and stuff like this wasn't really a thing because you're using Excel and actuary stuff. You're not really, or, or you know, a fancy statistical package, but you're typically not, you know, um, doing stuff at a, at a level you're going to need like ML ops. Maybe that's changing and I hope it is, but um, yeah, so it, it's, it's interesting. Um, Hopefully yeah. that answers your question. I think it really just depends on like what the objectives of the of the business are at the end of the day, and that's how you can structure it. Because again, Conway's law sort of uh, dictates how a lot of these systems and teams will be um, set up, right? So Conway's law is you'll invent systems, you'll communicate and design systems, um, um, you know, around the way that you communicate it as a business. So, and by the way, random, um, a little bit of a random comment. Um, you mentioned. Um, the first chief chief data officer at Capital One. I I'd, I'd always heard, and who knows which one is true because we're talking about twenty years ago. I always heard that the first chief data officer was Osama Fayad at at Yahoo. Hmm. He's told the story about how they said, "Okay, well, you're in charge of data, so what you, should your title be?" Okay, <laughs> well, oh, that's interesting. Um, he would actually make a make an interesting. Uh, he would actually make an interesting guest. He was also one of the first. Yeah, co-chairs of uh, KDD. Uh, anyway, interesting. Nice. Uh, That's cool. Interesting guy. Yeah, for me, the, the reporting structure, what I always struggle with is that if I'm working with a client and the data scientists report up through IT, usually the mindset is that they're a cost center. And yes. Joe, you were hinting at that. And I think that data science should be a profit center. Yep. Like your $50 million project Matt, that you mentioned a few minutes ago and wouldn't it be nice if we if it was always uh, always that much but for me if it's not it, you know if it's not seven figures it's you're not making your money back no nope. you know so 50 million is actually not not crazy i think no, one, i think 1 million is table stakes yeah. you know if you're not if you're not north of 1 million you're not even making your money back but anyway that that's why yeah. i struggle with it but i have found absolutely no consistency i could have five clients in a row and and not have almost any similarity between them. And maybe it's industry as you were hinting at, Joe, I don't know, but uh, I, 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 find think it's, that... I think it's all the above. I mean, just cause there's, it, it's like, no, no two companies are the same either. So, you know, where I see things fail is when you try and take a cookie cutter approach to things, you know, that's the recipe for disaster, like kind of a cargo culting your, uh, the, the way you design your teams and, and all this other stuff. It's, 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 it's fascinating for sure. So. Yeah, I guess the one thing I would feel strongly on is I don't think they should report to the same at a low level, hmm. you know, like at a director level or something like that. You know, I think they're fairly independent to keep those career paths and those skill sets uh, separately. But uh, that also could be a topic. Reporting structure could also, oh, yeah. could also could be a show. So next uh, next one, this is uh, kind of getting at the life cycle that you guys spend a lot of time on. This is kind of also this idea that data science is downstream of data engineering, which, which I absolutely agree with for the most part. But one interesting possible exception is stuff like feature engineering. Yep. Uh, because... I have no earthly idea what transformations I have to do um, until I'm waist deep 
you know, in the project. And that doesn't mean that I'm not doing transformations on top of your transformations, if that makes sense. But there's been yeah. absolutely times that I have to go back to pre-transformation data to get what I need to do my transformations because the signal's been like aggregated right out of the raw data. I'll give you a quick example where um, at the client, they thought it was crazy and they just didn't want to, they just didn't want to honor this request, but it was, um, it was a cell phone churn. And um, I wanted to look at the call details. And of course I don't care about individual calls. You know, I'm not, I'm not like a police detective, you know, I'm not trying to figure out who they were talking to. But the problem was, is I was getting the billing summary, but the billing summary was only about stuff that they, they spent money on, which makes sense. It's the bill, but that's where I was getting most of my data about activity. But I was finding some clients that had something free on their plan. And then they switched to something where it wasn't free anymore. And now it was a la carte spend. And I couldn't figure that out unless I went back to all their activity not only billable activity, but this was like a really huge deal because there was this code that hadn't been touched for years that took all the raw data and produced the billing summary. And really only the summary information was available to BI or reports or those kinds of things. So um, how do you, how do you deal with, you know, a data scientist that wants to go back like pre-transformation and probably almost nobody else wants to do that. You know, that 1%, that kind of really demanding internal customer. I mean, I, I find that really demanding analysts will do this too, right? Like they see something in the data and like, this is kind of weird, but something I, there's something I can't see here that I need to dig into. I've certainly had that happen. My general assumption is that um, data scientists or analysts who have those needs will go talk to data engineering and say, hey, can I get my hands on this data? And then typically the, the feature engineering itself is the responsibility of ML engineers and data scientists. Like they're going to be the ones yep. who are actually hacking on data, trying to find the features. But then depending on the team structure, sometimes it's the data engineers who actually deploy the featureization, if that makes sense. So they figure out the feature modeling, you know, the feature engineering on a laptop. And it's like, all right, let's work together to get this into production so it can work on terabytes of data and work completely automatically and we can start monitoring it and that kind of thing. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Joe? I mean, completely agree. I think transformations and serving are sort of this um, interesting uh, uh, life cycle on its own, right? Because it's, it's very iterative. Like, um, yeah. you know, if you, if you expect that people are going to transform data once and serve it to you and then that'll be the end of it. I mean, that's uh, that would be convenient. Uh, I would also shudder to think about how lame your data science will be um, as a result. So it's 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 a feedback loop for sure um but for the people that you know i mean in chapter nine we talk about serving data and i think this comes along the lines of yeah if you want all the raw data then it's your your right as a customer to get that so yeah you know and um it's interesting because i wrote down another question further on precisely because chapter nine is a little bit later on i was kind of going through the the yeah. book in order so let's kind of skip ahead to that particular question in some ways is this what a data lake if it's implemented well you talk about some cautions about you know like data lakes but is that is that part of if, if it's done well it potentially helps with this problem that the data scientist that does want something really granular or that wants to go back to the raw data that maybe that's where they're going to look for it 
Yeah, I, I think when we when we talk negatively about data lakes, I think usually what we're talking about is just a completely unmanaged data lake, right? Where stuff is just thrown in there, missing schema information, missing metadata, all kinds of stuff like that. But in, in general, for exactly this reason, the data lake or data lake house concept is useful because you do keep the raw data and it's available when you need it at some point in the future. And you actually keep more metadata to make sure that people can make sense of that data in the future. Yeah. Yep. And I, going back to what Joe was, I, I think part of what you're alluding to here, Keith, too, is that there, there's often this tendency, and maybe you dealt with this in companies you've worked with, sounds like it based on what you're saying, for data engineers to work in isolation and to say, this is what we think everyone needs, and then just work yeah. and work, and not give people access to raw data, make it really hard for people to get stuff they need, and not respond to customer requests, basically, very well when they do need Which things. is something we don't advise on. Yeah, we definitely, no. <laughs> there's a, in each chapter, there's a who you'll work with section, and it's there for a reason. Um, you know, data engineering is one of these things where we feel, and every, everything in data, really, it, it should be collaborative. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, if you take the notion of data products, which we also cover, you know, it's you're creating data products, which means you have to listen to customers, right? Whether the customers are data scientists and analysts or whatever. And, and those data scientists and analysts also listen to their customers about what they need. So, you know, it's it's all up and down the, um, you know, the food chain, so to speak. And, and so the, the last thing we advise is, you know, data engineers sort of you know, operate in a silo and um, you know, sort of willy-nilly just create data sets that they think people are going to need. I mean, we we see this happening. I mean, in our consulting business, we see this all the time. The data teams will not talk to the business, the business in quotes, um, and, uh, you know, create data sets and reports that they think the business will need. And the business says, I don't really need this. And, you know, the data engineer is like, well, that's nice. I don't really care. I'll keep sending you data you don't need. And so yeah. you can kind of see where that goes. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty obvious, uh, but... It's shocking how often this happens, and I, I don't really have a fix for this. Um, you know, the, the, the fix I would suggest is probably the fix that I think people will have a bit of a physical revulsion to, which is just to get rid of them. So, I, I'm kind of smiling because I did have um, a client where it, it wasn't, it didn't affect me on the project. It was an experience that they shared with me that had happened, I guess, about six months before, before I was doing <laughs> the client site. They said that they had done this big survey and they had like these town meetings to figure out the kind of data that people needed because the goal was to reduce ad hoc reporting to zero, hmm. not reduce it, reduce it to zero. So we're going to have this big conversation. Everybody's going to get their input, but speak now because you'll never be able to change your mind. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to formalize everything. And they said that uh, they spent uh, three months on that and it lasted a week. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah. It was a nightmare. Yeah. But they, I guess everybody, uh, whenever it brought up, everybody just broke eye contact and didn't want to talk about it again or something like that. I, again, I, was, I wasn't there. I was here in the second hand. This was like uh, uh, talk over coffee in the break room, you know. But uh, yeah, that's when you take it to that extreme. And of course, it, it's impossible for the data. How on earth am I going to know what data I need yeah. until yeah. I get the next project assignment, you know? Yeah. And I think from a team organizational perspective too, it would make sense even to have like office hours where the data engineers say, hey, these are our office hours. And actually, if you want to schedule other time, just let us know. We're busy, but we'll find time. And instead of just telling the data scientists, here's the data lake, good luck with that, sitting down and saying, okay, what, what are you looking for? Like, let's see if we can find this together in the data and start getting you some of what you need early on before you're even getting into production and getting into building production transformations. 
I, a lot of problems in corporate organizational structure would just be solved by more conversations and more communication. Same thing with like the relationship between data engineers and software developers working in a website, say, just actually talking to each other frequently and checking in and figuring out mutual needs would be extremely helpful. It would be useful. It's interesting too. I was having a chat with Bill Inman over the weekend about, um, you know, sort of what his, you know, he's been in the data space for a long time. I think he's probably the wisest person that I've met in the data space. And, you know, his, his true north has always been, um, you know, making sure the data is believable and providing believable data. I thought that was really interesting. And it's one of the things that if I were to, you know, um, go back to the book and define how data engineering, um, um, well, how, how have you find it? I'd probably say it's, it's also the, um, um, you know, delivery of, of believable data sets, right? That's, uh, but you only get that believability by talking to people, right? And understanding what their, their, their pain points are and um, the use cases and, and, and so forth. Um, and that, that requires, um, again, strangely enough, back to what we're talking about, uh, communication. I know it's hard to do this, but um, this is how you provide believable data uh, at the end of the day. So, Well, you know, and it's interesting, too, because it makes me think of data observability. I know that a few weeks ago you guys had um, Kevin Hu on the, on the show. But, you know, if, if your model predictions start getting wacky, Clearly, it could be that the model degraded, but it's just as likely that one of the input variables has gone off the rails, you know? So it kind of gets us back to um, who's in charge of data believability. You can do some of that at the source, but some of it might have to be like post-reverse ETL, if you if you get what I mean, right? I mean, it could be that the scores just don't make, just don't make any sense. And that might be the first hint. Um, so I don't know, we're probably back to maybe that belongs to ML ops, right? That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Cause I think, I think in this early phase of observability, there's been a real focus on just like rule-based observability and maybe some statistics. And at some point, what you really need is anomaly detection, right? And that anomaly detection can happen after your models. It can happen in a variety of layers of, of the data engineering lifecycle in different places in the data flow. But just looking for signals where it's like something is going way out of bounds here. What's going on? And then you have to drill down and drill down to find where the problem actually is from that point. But yeah, that's, that's an interesting idea that your models are actually a really great tool for detecting anomalies. If they start behaving weirdly, then maybe something is going on with the data upstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was this wacky experience that I had uh, once where it was only the model prediction that helped us find out that something was funky. I um, I, I took the I, I took the delta, you know, so I took the difference between the predicted and the and the actual, and I made that the target of a of a model. And we found out, you know, I was working with a client on this, and we found out that the the number one predictor of the prediction being completely off the rails was the cost of the product. This was being run on like 80,000 SKUs. Well, here's, here's the weird detail. Well, what the wacky predictions were where the cost of the, the SKU was under a dollar and they didn't sell anything that was under a dollar. So it was like, what the heck is going on? Mm, yep. And it, it turned out to be replacement parts that were under warranty. So there was either some minimal oh. charge or 
it was just postage or something or whatever on that. But it's because those weren't those weren't used in the training data. Oh. But they were part of the, you know, like of the deployment data. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. This is maybe a, a, but that happens a lot though, yeah, right? And yeah, I think it comes yeah. back to understanding your data too. And and when you're making a model, did you did you take all these things into account? Did you even know that this was a thing, right? Uh, the well, returns data or not when, when you built the model and then so that's but this happens this happens all the time i was i was looking through a customer's data set yesterday actually um they, they had some they had some questions on um uh pricing um and discounts and when i looked at the data set i, I was like i i, I don't <laughs> they're like should we discount or not i'm like i you know i think it's inconclusive but you know there's, there's a bunch of different th parts of the data we need to figure out but that you know that analysis is what i would i would say that that's you know, hopefully how you avoid that type of uh, situation too. But it's interesting, the model informs that. And I think it's a pretty good model if it could have formed that because uh, um, in a lot of cases, these things um, might just go sight unseen. Well, what was so interesting about in that case is that I was really working for the data engineers and not the data scientists. And the reason was, is that mm -hmm. average accuracy had degraded a little bit. Mm -hmm. So the mission, as this happens all the time, you know, you're asked to do one thing, but it doesn't really solve the problem. What I was asked to do was to implement like an automated model refresh because the model had degraded a little bit overall. So the feeling was, well, if we just rerun this thing every night at midnight, then it's going to make the problem go away. I said, well, I don't want to take any action until I understand what the problem is. So that's why we looked at why it was accurate for some portions of the data, but not other portions of the data. So it makes me think that whoever's in charge of, you know, a data observability type thing, if it's before, if it's upstream of the data scientists, something that you might miss. In other words, an argument could be made, the same person is looking at data observability should be in charge of model monitoring and management. Or, or, maybe, or maybe it's a question for Makiko to get her opinion on that. You know, should that, should that person be in charge of both quirks in the data as well as quirks in model performance? Because there, there's a lot of similarities. Well, and it underscores the point that a lot of these boundaries that we set up in our teams, you need them, right? You need different reporting structures for data engineering, for software development, for ML engineering, but they're also artificial. And so you end up creating silos where you really want these teams to work together because often you're really talking about an end-to-end -end problem all the way from where the data is generated to where it's getting served in a model. And there could be a problem anywhere in there, right? And you need to mm -hmm. model you need to monitor throughout that pipeline and then communicate when problems are found and figure out where, where the issue is. And in this case, it was like an issue just with the the data that was being used for training. It's You know, you're totally right, because it could be it could be in the feature engineering too, right? What you guys were saying earlier, that somebody like me might prototype the feature engineering, but maybe it's not scalable. Yeah. Well, it sort of brings up an interesting argument too, where I think maybe ML engineering and data engineering, you know, if I were to make a team, maybe mm -hmm. they should be on the same team. Because at the end of the day, they're responsible for the life cycle of the uh, data and the infrastructure that manages that data. So possibly not the use cases, um, you know, which the data scientists and analysts would be, I would say, uh, they're the more of the doing something with it. But the ML engineers and the data engineers are very much a supporting role. And so in order to, you know, but where, where in the life cycle do these issues happen, right? So it does bring up an interesting argument too. Well, maybe data engineers are just ML engineers and vice versa. But I would say that there's in order for you to do that, there's so much that you'd need to know about the respective life cycles and about the tools that, and just the, the body and knowledge. You, you tell me, okay, so um, a good data engineer, I would say needs to know certain things. A good ML engineer needs to know a set of other things. 
um, to combine these into one person is, uh, I mean, that's a lot, that's a, that's a pretty capable person and a pretty rare one. Well, you know, but you, I think you're onto something because, you know, if you think data engineering, then just in terms of the timeline, data engineering, um, data science, then ML ops on the end, if we're defining ML ops is mostly model management, right? I would absolutely agree with you that data engineering and ML ops should probably report to the same, might, might have this, a different, two different managers, but would report to the same folks and probably would report to IT. Whereas maybe the data scientist would be off reporting to a CAO or chief algorithms officer or, or you know, something like that. Because again, the, the model hopefully is a profit center, but once you're maintaining it, that becomes a cost, right? So, you know, it's really on either end. I think the skill set is very similar. It's the model building itself where the skill set is different enough that it's probably a different career path. Yeah, and knowing what to look for too, like you know, knowing that your uh, Kafka cluster isn't working is a different skill set than knowing that, um, you know, your model has some sort of a quirk in it that wasn't there yesterday. And this is, and, and it requires having sort of, you know, sort of a sixth sense in some ways too with with how models work, and in particular your how your models work, right? Because it's it's one thing to know the mechanics of machine learning; it's another thing to know how those mechanics translate to solving your business problems. So, you know, it's, um, it's, 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 it's a multifaceted, uh, uh, answer to a, I think a very interesting question. So, yeah. And I, I think it's still very much an unsolved problem, right? I mean, what, one thing Joe and I talk about a lot is the fact that so much data comes from the outside now, right? And so you have a data vendor, be that an ads platform or a SaaS platform or something you subscribe to. And they often change their data without telling you, or, or maybe they notify you, but you miss the notification or they don't quite explain very well how that data is going to change. And so you can have model problems that occur from third-party data, or you can have model problems that occur from transformations inside your company, because maybe the data engineers make a small tweak to a model to debug something, but then it breaks something else in the way the data is making it to the model. You can have problems with the model itself. You can have problems with the real world where you're getting the data from, like changes in customer behavior, all kinds of different things. And so, yeah. Um. So, so I want to talk about something a little different, and this one, this may make you two feel a little bit on the spot, but I think it's worth. We do this, this other people. While, so I've warmed, I've warmed you up to it. Anyway, <laughs> what, one thing again, when I'm hanging out with the like the TDWI crowd, a lot of times they'll talk about, hey, you know, like eighty percent of users or whatever number they believe the number is can uh, can live within ad hoc reports most of the time, right? And you're going to need those folks that kind of need those exceptions. And then a lot of times I've heard things where you know the data scientists are the, you know, they really need granular data. I mean, it's folks like me often that will want a whole year's worth of data or more granular than anybody else wants, and all kinds of special requests. And I think it just kind of comes with comes with the territory, but where in your experience have you seen data scientists kind of um, cross the line a little bit and it, it's beyond just they've got a tough job to do. So they have some demanding requests and it's just like they're not, just not pulling their weight. And they're getting too, too heavy into like the ad hoc or the granular and it becomes a it becomes a time sink. I guess my take on this question is it depends how that data scientist is deploying their time and what projects they're emphasizing. 
Where I've seen this be a problem is when data scientists are off doing hobby projects that aren't really going to deliver any value. Like they see some interesting, I don't know, blip in the data and they, they spend a bunch of time pursuing that without asking the question, well, does this blip even matter to the company? Um, and then then data engineers end up spending a bunch of time serving these requests and there isn't really like they, they get an answer out of it, but but it's not an answer that moves the needle at all. And I feel like on the other hand, if you can identify value, like somehow if this helps you to serve your customers better, helps you to predict better, then it should be fine to spend time on those things. But it's a tricky question of like identifying what's just a cost sink versus what is actually going to generate profit and bigger value for the company. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this, Joe? I think it was what's delivered at the end of the day, right? Like I don't, I don't mind it if a data scientist spends a lot of time, um, sort of meandering in the wilderness. I think as long as there's, um, at the end of the day, what, you know, what, what's, I guess, what's the expectation, right? I, there, there should be some time allocated to this because that's how you get to understand some of the nuances of your data. And if you don't know the nuances of your data, then it's, you know, you don't know, you don't know the boundaries of it really, right? It's like asking you to be an explorer, but all you do is just stare at maps all day and not go out and explore. Like it's, it's similar. So, and part of the, part of the, um, you know, the, the art of, of the data science is, is really, going out there and, and pushing the edges. But I, it, at the end of the day, I think it, there also needs to be some expectation set that, you know, if, if this yields nothing, I suppose that's also a win. But um, at the end of the day, we're also trying to get wins, um, you know, so let's let's identify what those are and, and uh, um, you know, identify steps towards getting there. But again, part of data is, you know, there's if you haven't, if you haven't looked at your data, it's all unknowns. It's as simple as that. And so, you know, so. It is definitely balanced. I, I would say, you know, that but the, the hobby project stuff is more of a result of a, a lack of a clear direction. And you see this with software engineers too, right? Like they'll uh, go and pick the, the you know, the latest uh, frameworks and you know, go nerd out on those at the expense of shipping features. And I think there's some benefit to, you know, spending time, um, you know, checking out new technologies. And I, I strongly encourage people to do that. That's, that's actually how you might come up with a better idea for doing stuff. Um, you know, but it's um, there's, it's a tension for sure. So, I guess part of it is um, if they have a sandbox to play in, mm -hmm. then maybe, you know, in my experience, sometimes at the beginning of a project, I'll grab a month's worth. You know, some reasonable amount that I can process on my you know, on my laptop, like a month's worth of pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, you know, just like select star for everything that happened, you know, across the board last month so that I'm, so that I'm, uh, can play around with it and not be constantly making, um, you know, requests. And I, yeah, try yeah. To, I try to go multiple iterations on my own before I kick it up to go into production. Like yeah, I wouldn't create exactly. a feature on a Tuesday and send an email saying, Hey, let's put this feature in a production, like on a Wednesday. I'm, you know, you know, man, I'm like, you have to, you have to be judicious about, um, you know how often you're doing that but but you guys were very generous with your answer because i think to be honest there are probably data scientists out there that drive their data engineering peers crazy you know and well, i think that yeah you know, and vice versa um <laughs> so that's okay. fair yeah but i think you know maybe another way of looking at this too is you know if, if you say if you work a data scientist at an e-commerce company right i mean you know, that, spend your time focusing on, you know, focusing on retail and e-commerce related questions and diving into, you know, the data sets related to that. If I find you're, you're like, you know, staring at data sets from like the James Webb telescope on company time, um, you know, I might have to have a word with you about that. So um, 
unless there's some some you know strange relationship where somehow you figured that that you know astronomical data set uh, can you know help us boost our sales. In which case, I'll um, I'll ask you to explain that. I don't know. I mean, correlation between solar flares and uh, response rate. But Sure. Yeah. Solar flares in, you know, a very distant galaxy too. Black hole collisions. Yeah. So, Black hole collisions you know, but again, you know, I, I'm the kind of guy, I try and keep an open mind about stuff yeah. too initially. Cause it's like, I, you know, as a, as a manager, you, you don't want to, um, you, you don't want to squash good ideas too early. And, and the good ideas sometimes may seem like really crappy ideas. That's, that's the whole paradox of this. I think if you, if you, if you start trying to shoehorn in what you think are good ideas um, too early, and maybe with too much emphasis, we're going to kill creativity on your team. And that's the last thing you want. I mean, data scientists, I think I, math skills to me with data science is sort of a given. Like everyone has all the analytical skills. But what, what I think what makes really good data scientists is curiosity and creativity and solving problems and, and just exploring things. That's um, the best ones I've seen have, have just had a very good knack for that. What I'll add too, Keith, is that you were alluding to this idea of creating sandbox environments. And I, I think that's also a very important data engineering responsibility, right? So think about DevOps. One of the responsibilities of a DevOps team typically is to provide development resources, right? Like development environments so you can do builds as you're working on your code, you can do testing. Um, and if we're not doing that in, with data science as well, like providing things like notebook servers and to sandbox data sets and such, maybe with some appropriate anonymization, then we're slowing down people's ability to develop new models. And so I think it's easy to say, oh, I have you know 50 other production responsibilities. I don't want to worry about these development responsibilities. But in the long term, in terms of value, having those toys to play with is actually going to deliver a lot, which is exactly what you're alluding to, too. Yeah. So. Well, so you're not getting, nobody wants to be dealing with like daily requests. You don't want to be, right. oh my gosh, it's third day in a row, we've gotten an email from so-and-so, you know, um, so next, next topic cloud and, and the nature of this question obviously isn't a pick favorites, um, among, uh, the platform uh, providers. That's not the nature of my question, but this came up in conversation when I was hanging out with the data warehouse crowd crowd too. Um, I'm just starting to see it's fairly recent, but I'm just starting to see an expectation that if I'm working with data scientists, um, you know, a particular organization that we're going to use, we're going to emphasize, if not use exclusively, the tools associated with their cloud provider. So, you know, that could be Azure with Microsoft or AWS or, you know, whatever, right? Um, again, this is quite new. I've only been seeing it probably within the last year or so, and COVID's made everything a blur. So maybe it's been a trend for three or four years. And 30 I'm, years. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I've only noticed it for a year. I don't know. But... My sense is, is that when an enterprise de makes decisions about the cloud infrastructure, it's really with data engineering, you know, in mind and IT in mind. But I'm wondering if this could be the beginning of a trend where the analytics and data science folks kind of get taken along for the ride, where once this de decision is made over on the IT side, there's a strong kind of expectation. Oh, by the way, you know, we have this relationship now and all of our data is in there and your models are going to run faster or whatever the arguments might be. I'm wondering if if you're starting to see this too, and if so, is it a healthy thing or should we be a little concerned about it? Because again, the, the potential concern would be is that maybe the data scientists weren't at the table when they chose a particular platform. Because I don't think anybody chooses a cloud vendor because it has this or that machine learning algorithm. 
they're, they're making the decision for other reasons. Um, what do you guys think? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think so. So I have a couple of thoughts here. I, I, in general, I really like the idea of having data scientists work more in cloud environments because it does solve certain problems, right? So instead of just having data on your laptop, if you're working on some kind of a cloud server, you can give other people access to that same server. And so you can do things like share data, share code more easily. And so there's less, there's less friction in collaboration. Um, I, I tend to agree that companies are not necessarily making the decisions that are best for data science when they choose cloud platforms. And so maybe that's part of the discussion here that ML and data science should be pulled into these conversations fairly early. Um, the other thing I'll say is that generally you don't want to just make this a data science free for all. That usually has bad consequences if you just tell the data scientists, uh, here's an well, admin account. Just to, Well, especially uh, with GPU costs in the cloud, where they are right now. And security. That's the other yeah, one that terrifies Security for sure. Yeah. Big time. And so you do want a collaboration where, again, like the data engineers and ML engineers are responsible for setting up environments and maintaining security and working with the data scientists to make sure that they have the resources they need. Um, cause other, otherwise like it, it ends up in a, being a free for all, all that's worse than people using their laptops. Like they just end up spinning up a million VMs without any collaboration whatsoever. What are, what are your thoughts, Joe, on this? Well, I think Sonny has a good point here. He says, I often state that just because I have an enterprise agreement doesn't mean your tool for X yeah. is my first choice. And yeah, totally agree. Um, I mean, I, I think the approach to this is, you know, include data scientists in this discussion, you know, in fact, right before I you know, started the, uh, um, the show, you know, I was on a, a call with a client and they were, you know, trying to figure out which cloud to move to. And the discussion was very much, okay, so we're, we're going to be doing machine learning at some point. Um, I was like, okay, that's, that's, that's a good consideration. And they kind of explained what they'll be doing and, and so forth. And so, um, you know, I would say having, the, you know, stake, all stakeholders at the, um, in these discussions early on is, is how I would advise doing it. Um, you can, of course, do this the other way where you just say, we're uh, we're in AWS, for example, and that's what you get to use, and these are the tools you get to use, and that's 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 that, and and certainly you can do whatever you want in AWS. Um, you know, if if the mandate is oh well, you you know you have to use um, SageMaker and you have to use all managed AWS services, and of course that that limits the um, you know the tool set that a data scientist and, and the team can use, and and so you know hopefully a data science teams um, you know have a bit of pushback on this because I mean ideally they should know what they need to do their job. I mean, I don't know. It's like going to my car mechanic and saying, look, I mean, I really need you to use these tools that I've provided for you. You'd be like, you can go somewhere else. So. Very cool. I recognize Sonny's name, by the way. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Sonny, for the. Uh, yeah, Sonny's cool. So I've got, um, I've got kind of a fun one to end on if we have time. Uh, yeah, I've got a few minutes. Yeah, we can get a couple yeah. minutes over. Yep. Okay. I, I like this, uh, like this quote uh, towards the end of the, it's in the, it's in chapter nine. I think it's in chapter nine. I think it's in the serving analytics thing. What's this data is the silent killer. Mm, sort of like flatulence. Um, just kidding. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> what we mean though is uh, data um, has uh there's a lot of things. So if you don't know, if you don't know what's in your data, you might be making decisions off that data for, and I've seen this happen, you know, for months or years even. And you, you come to find out that data is wrong. Something happened. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. It's wrong. Um, and so when, we, when you start hearing things like, oh, well, we, you know, our, the, uh, the reports that we have are uh, you know, directionally correct, for example. That's, that's a good sign that 
uh, something happened in the data where um, maybe you just have issues, right? And so that's what I mean. Um, you know, I've, I've seen cases where, again, you're making decisions off of data and some of these decisions end up being catastrophic. It's not like it's, uh, you know, a point in time thing. It's like you, over and over, you keep making decisions that are suboptimal to your business. So Matt, any, any other thoughts on that? Well, Keith, you were alluding earlier to this idea. You didn't put it this way, but basically models can be a silent killer as yep. well, right? So this is something that terrifies you and terrifies us. You go into a client, you do a really good job of building something, and then the data changes or there's drift, and suddenly that model is effectively making really bad decisions and costing a lot of money. And it's something very similar where with data, you can in 2020 be, you can have your data in like really good shape so that people are making great decisions. But if you don't keep an eye on things, something upstream can break, the outside worlds can change, and then suddenly that data is giving you incorrect answers because it's not accurately reflecting what's going on in the world. Yeah, Sonny mentioned uh, missing uh, data in another comment that he made. And uh, we can all imagine a data scientist building a model where they've fixed the missing data and the training data. But then at deployment, missing data is flowing through that model. I, I mean, I see that all the time where someone's like imputing or whatever, or they're using imputation in some auto ML tool. So their training data effectively doesn't have missing data anymore. Yep. There was missing data in the raw data, but not, you know, not, uh, not in the training data. And of course, this is something you learn and it's kind of expected, but a lot of times that person either isn't around or isn't thinking forward and then you're deploying uh, and that data is going through. Anyway, we could come up with a gazillion reasons. Oh, for sure. Why models uh, look good uh, on the on the whiteboard and then uh, and then uh, uh, fail later. Anyway, I thought this was uh, I thought this was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah, thanks. It's great. We'll have to have you back while we interview you next time. But uh, oh, sure. Um, yeah. So I think there's uh, plenty of material to go from. But uh, yeah, uh, you have a, you have a good uh, stage presence about you. So um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's be a lot of fun. I would enjoy um, it. I yeah, would enjoy coming back. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for being Lots on of the great year. questions too. And so I'm sure you have great answers. We'll, we'll have to come up with some questions for you that cross over between uh, data engineering and machine learning engineering. Well, and, and who knows if we get lucky, we may get some very cool comments, um, you know, under the show on LinkedIn or, yeah. you know, I don't yeah. know how often the conversation kind of continues over there, but that would be, uh, that'd be fun to see if that materializes too. For sure. Cool. Speaking of shows, um, coming up this week, I'll be on the, uh, let me see, the Modern Data Show um, on Wednesday. Um, I'm not sure if that's pre-recorded or not, but anyway, then uh, Utah Data Engineering Meetup this uh, Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. We have none other than Bill Inman. He'll be talking about um, text analytics. So um, if, if you're uh, interested in that, check it out. Um, plus it's just a chance to, um, you know, uh, chat with a, you know, a legend and, you know, of the field. So I mean, the other thing I, I, I talked to him this weekend, I, I didn't, I didn't know that he uh, invented ETL. Um, that's, that's kind of interesting too, that both these things almost never saw the light of day. Um, oh, I, I ETL. That, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of nuts. Yeah. Anyway. Um, he's got great stories. He's a great guess. storyteller. Oh, geez. Yeah. I love that paving the road thing. I can't. It had something to do with data, uh, data architects or whatever, but the paving mm. the road story. I know that. Oh, it was the show that you and he were on together, Joe. Oh, yeah, yeah. With architecture and everything, yeah. A lot of times with his stories, about halfway through, you go, where is this going? And then he he ties it into the topic and you go, aha. 
it's where he's he's like yoda it's crazy so, <laughs> so he'll be at the utah data entering meetup that'll be uh um uh it's virtual so just show up um there's q a it's live so uh let me see and on thursday uh thursday am we're on the uh, critical start webinar matt and i'll be talking about actually data engineering and security and how these things relate to each other so that's gonna be pretty fun it's um, gonna be a fun one i'm excited actually <laughs> yeah that, that'll be fun it's a bit of an yeah. interesting take um, no Monday morning data chat next week, uh, cause I'll be in Australia. Um, we'll be speaking at data engine bytes in Melbourne and Sydney. So if you're in, uh, the land of Oz, um, come say hi, uh, we'll be doing a book signing and all the other fun stuff. Then back on, uh, let's see the third, um, we have, uh, Omar from, uh, Roche actually Kent, uh, Graziano recommended that he come on cause he had, uh, almost had some great success from, uh, with data mesh and, um, yeah, lots going on. <laughs> lots going on now. So, uh, and then we'll be in New York City on the 11th at a data-driven NYC, uh, which is a Matt Turk's meetup. So, anyway, lots going on, and that's a small fraction of what's going on. So, and Joe, uh, do we know if you, there will be videos of any of your talks in Australia or the data-driven? I think data-driven NYC will be online at some point. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, okay. maybe we'll it will. To, maybe it won't. We'll, yeah. We'll post something <laughs> so, about it if it is. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, anyway yeah thanks everybody thanks to the audience great questions uh keith again uh great questions as well so looking forward to uh chatting more so yeah cool all right oh, a lot of fun with it thanks yeah. guys awesome. thank you all right happy monday see you